Hello and welcome to Informed, a podcast series where you will hear industry experts share their thought-provoking insights and lessons in the field of medical communications. This series is brought to you by ISMAP and is generously sponsored by MedThink SciComm. I'm Rob Mathias, President and CEO of ISMAP. Today we have another fantastic speaker from the annual meeting here to talk about data privacy. And while data privacy is not always a fun topic, Jordan Fisher is an enthusiastic and knowledgeable speaker. Jordan leads the Octillo Legal and Tech Global Data Privacy Team and focuses her practice on international data privacy, cybersecurity, and cross-border data management with an emphasis in European Union data privacy regulations and GDPR. She's a lecturer in cybersecurity at the University of California, Berkeley, and a professor of law at the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law. She's also the director of the Klein School of Law Center for Law and Transformational Technology. Jordan is an active speaker, presenter, and published expert in data privacy, technology, compliance, and cybersecurity. Today, I'll be speaking with Jordan about the implications of international and domestic privacy laws and how they specifically impact medical publication professionals. Of particular importance to our industry is patient privacy in clinical trials and the challenges in protecting their identities. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. We're very lucky to have you. You know, Jordan, normally I just jump right in and I ask people to talk about implications for publications and medical communications professionals. But I'll tell you, this is a pretty complex topic. And I thought maybe we'll start off if I give you the microphone right back and and you kind of give us just a refresh on what these privacy laws are all about. Yeah, I think complex is the nicest way to put it. (laughs) It feels like some days it's more than complex, but it is a really good idea to just sort of level set on what's going on from a legal perspective, regardless of your industry, regardless of the data that you're using, because it's incredibly dynamic and it's evolving at a pretty rapid pace, especially when you look at law generally, law tends to lag behind, but we see in this space law really driving a lot of the conversation. And so it's really important to have that baseline. And so really at a high level, when we're talking about the legal infrastructure for privacy, cybersecurity and technology law, we really have three core lenses that you wanna be thinking about. And the first lens is what's going on internationally. And frankly, that is driving a significant amount of the global conversation. The European Union with the adoption of the General Data Protection Regulation of the GDPR in 2018 has really raised the level of this conversation. A lot of international jurisdictions are looking to the EU and its model to create their own legislative infrastructure. And so what we see internationally is laws that are coming into play that either align with or at least obtain some influence from that European model. So the EU is sort of reigning in that international lens. When we move to the United States, there's two other lenses that are really critical to be aware of. And the first is what is going on federally at the United States. So from a federal perspective, we see very industry-specific laws like the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, HIPAA, which is one that many listeners are probably familiar with, et cetera. And they're very industry-specific. In the beginning part of 2022, we've also seen some discussion around this general privacy law that would apply across industry, across the entire United States. It's still unknown where that will go, although that conversation just continues to we circle back to it repeatedly because there's this recognition that we're becoming somewhat of an outlier to the approach to privacy as compared to our international colleagues. And the reason we're seeing that pressure is because of this third lens, and that is at the state law level. States like California, Colorado, Virginia, Utah 
are adopting these general privacy laws that have proactive requirements on protecting information. Each one has its own nuances. Each one has its own sort of areas that it's really focusing on. But California, with the adoption of the CCPA in 2020, and now with its update to the CCPA with the CPRA in this upcoming January 2023, is really driving a lot of that conversation. And so this is when you're looking at what's going on in this space, you need to understand that there's sort of three core levels that you need to assess to understand, do I have proactive privacy security obligations and where are they coming from? Wow, that, that's amazing. And it is quite complex. You know, you just used the words you need to understand. And when you said that to me, I thought, well, my goodness, how does someone like myself or people listening to this, how do they get a better understanding of all of this? So there's a lot of really great resources out there, but I always like to say, let's start at the basics. When you look at all of these laws, they're mainly driven by what we call the Fair Information Privacy Principles or FIP that were developed in the 1970s. And in the FIP, they talk a lot about transparency and notice and putting appropriate controls in place, et cetera. That's a really great place to start with your own sort of privacy regulatory education, because learning that baseline, you're going to see that be adopted in GDPR, in CCPA, in HIPAA, in Canada's privacy information law, et cetera. That doesn't mean you're gonna know all the nuances, but you're certainly gonna start to understand the vernacular. You're gonna see the trends, the similarities across all of them. And then it's finding, frankly, good partners that you can work with to help give you this knowledge. This is a very complex space, as you said, and it's changing so rapidly. Unless you are full-time engaged with what's going on in the privacy and security space, it is hard to keep up, but it's finding those key thought leaders, those partners who are gonna share information with you so that you can understand an issue spot. That's what I would encourage anyone who's not directly in this space. It's more of an issue spotting exercise to understand when do I have to elevate this to either an internal resource or an external partner that can help us to understand it. Got it. Very, very useful. So I'm going to put myself now in the position of a publication or medical communications professional. And I'm thinking about all the things that you just threw out there for us. Can you talk a little bit more about like what the implications are starting first with, with clinical trials, right? Many of our listeners are writing up the results of clinical trials. What are the basic implications there? The basic implications are that clinical trials are built on data data is going to be impacted by these privacy regulations at varying degrees. And what I find incredibly interesting in the clinical trial space is that a lot of these trials will then share data in a de-identified format. But the challenge that we see currently is how these laws define key terms around de-identification, like pseudonymization, de-identification, anonymization, aggregation, is different. The way that they sort of the factors they're asking you to look at, the appropriateness of the controls around that are slightly nuanced and different. So when we're looking at the clinical trial space, the first question is, are we dealing with personal data? And it's really a spectrum because personal data is defined so broadly. You really want to ask yourself, do I have personal data? If I don't, what do I actually have? If I have pseudonymized data, which is where the GDPR defines it as removing an identifier and inserting, say, a random number, um, I'm still in GDPR land. I've just decreased my risk. I'm not completely out of GDPR land. If I have anonymized data, which the GDPR has laid out a three-factor test to determine whether or not it's anonymized, I'm outside of GDPR land, which means I can 
you know, more freely leverage that data for my clinical trial. And so I find often in this space, the clinical trial space, the medical space, that you need a deep understanding of, do I or do I not have personal data? And if I don't have personal data, where do I sit on that spectrum of de-identification such that I can remove myself from these proactive privacy requirements, or I still need to comply with them at varying levels? One additional level of complexity before you, before you jump in, Rob, which I know this is a lot of information, is that in the U.S., um, we do have some carve outs for clinical trials. So the CCPA does carve out certain information and it would not apply to that trial. So you always need to be looking at this specific law to see, is this the type of information that's been carved out? Am I de-identified such that I'm outside of the scope of the law? There's a couple of ways to sort of be focusing on it. Got it. Got it. I can tell you this is probably one of the scariest podcasts I've recorded to date, just given all the terminology <laughs> and so on. So I think a starting point, as you mentioned, is certainly FIP. Let me ask you another question. And this is, goes just because there is so much terminology. Are the words like de-identified, anonymous, and, and some of the other terminology used, are they synonyms in our world? Because we have to think about which points of lingo to use in our, our write-up of data. So tell me a little bit about those words. And this is, that you, you. I think you've hit the nail on the head of the challenge in this space generally. The words in the privacy, security, and technology space do not mean the same thing to every stakeholder out there. So if I use the word anonymization from a legal perspective, I'm thinking about sort of the factors that would allow my client to demonstrate that the data can't be re-identified such that it then becomes personal data as defined under the law. When you talk to a statistician or a computer science individual or a data analyst, anonymized is really around statistical probabilities. It's looking at things like K-anonymity and differential privacy, which the law doesn't talk about, right? The law might point to examples in that, but when you're looking at it, it is very, it could be very different outcomes depending on how you apply the legal definition. And I say all of this by way of saying, we need this sort of meeting of the minds of these different stakeholders to say, okay, is this legally anonymized? Is it statistically anonymized such that we're all comfortable saying it's truly anonymized information? Um, one really good resource for this is the National Institute of Standard and Technology, NIST. They do lay out some definitions that I would say when you're looking at U.S. laws generally likely align. When you get into the European laws, though, you will need to look very specifically at their definitions as they could be distinctly different than what we see in the United States. Got it. Got it. So you really just can't give us the language here today that we need to be using. It's, it's much more complex than that is what I hear you saying. It is. And it's, it's part of it is because there is no right or wrong. It's a lot of gray. And it's really around where do you and your company feel comfortable sitting in that gray? You know, if you talk to the academics in this space, they can make an argument that everything can be re-identified, especially as computing power becomes just that much more robust. That being said, you know, the law is reasonable. We live in the real world. And so it's coming up with a reasonably defensible approach to how you're treating data, whether it's personal data, pseudonymized or anonymized that you feel comfortable. And it's, it's really all around how have I decreased the privacy risk to the individual? Have I taken the appropriate steps to say, listen, we have limitations in technology. We have limitations in what we can do, but I've done all that I can do 
with a reasonable mindset to decrease the risk to that data. So going out making an attempt to actually get to a lower risk is, is important? It's very important. And I think it's also just going through the thought exercise. A lot of these laws will want to see that you have done what we commonly call a data protection impact assessment, which is basically asking, does my processing activity have an impact on the privacy rights of an individual? And if it does, are there things that I can do to decrease that privacy risk? And if I can't decrease that privacy risk, is that okay? Are we comfortable with that position? So it's not necessarily around not using data or not moving forward with operations. It's really about requiring companies to ask the question that I think many companies just have never asked. They've just moved forward with an assumption that data it can be freely used in different circumstances. Okay, okay. So our folks listening to this, they need to be aware of this, number one. And then this part of the conversation has me thinking documentation, right? So I may not have it right, or maybe we didn't go the route that you know everyone wants us to go down in terms of privacy, but it sounds like if we can document that there was a rational thought process that went into it, it's a step in the right direction with all this complexity. That's 100% correct, Rob. And I find for so many companies, they're doing the right thing. They inherently have an understanding of concepts of confidentiality. They recognize the sensitivity of the nature of their data. And so they're inherently doing the right thing. Are there areas they can mature and improve? Of course there are, but there's areas that we can all mature and, and improve in this space. But so many companies do not document it such that they can say, well, we've informed everyone to be doing this. They're not just doing it because gut check, the industry generally aligns with more of these sort of confidentiality requirements, these privacy requirements. And a lot of these regulations, the way they're being drafted is it's great that you're doing it, but you've got to be able to prove it to me through policies and standard operating procedures and guidelines and then artifacts you can pull from your infrastructure to say, and we've actually done what's in our policies and our SOPs, et cetera. Makes sense. And publication professionals have grown up this way. You know, it's we've basically had to grow up learning documentation and being able to justify some of the decisions we've made. So it's not so far out there. Let me ask you, though, what is what's the risk for, you know, a publication professional or someone who's managing publication professionals if they're not paying attention to this? So there's a couple of layers of risk to be considering. I'm going to sort of broadly talk about them, regardless of international or national. So the first is just strictly non-compliance with a regulation and a regulatory authority coming in, investigating and finding that non-compliance. And a lot of these regulations will have fines attached to them. Um, you know, the regulatory authorities have general, you know, broad leeway in addressing those fines. In addition to fines, the regulatory authorities could say we're going to be monitoring and watching you for the next 10 years, which in some ways can be more impactful than a financial fine sort of watching what you're doing. Additionally, to the extent that there are contracts being signed with partners, whether that's sort of the clinical study partners or other partners in this industry, and you fail to abide by those privacy requirements, whether they're contractual or regulatory, because we often see in contracts is anybody who is sort of part of the data ecosystem of what's going on is going to contractually agree to comply with certain privacy laws in addition to contractually agreeing to certain privacy controls specifically in the contract. And that's just a breach of contract, right? And that's pretty standard damages. And you could potentially be on the hook for the fines of your partners or your, your customers, et cetera. And then the third potential risk here is a private right of action 
by the data subjects whose data you're using. So if it's found that you're using it in a way that violates their privacy rights, increasingly we're seeing individuals file lawsuits against companies. Now that's an area that is very much up in the air. So whether or not someone will successfully be able to pursue that is something that would require a whole nother podcast to dive into on the litigation side, but that risk is out there, right? And whenever you have one individual who can sue, you could also have class actions and class actions candidly is where there's a lot more pain points for companies to address and potentially much higher costs associated. Wow. Wow. I mean, you're talking to folks who grew up with fear around and PTSD and in some cases around Sunshine Act implications and corporate integrity agreements and ghostwriting and so on and so forth. And, and now we've got this whole new layer of things to be concerned about. My mind goes to development, right? So if I'm a publication professional and I want to make sure that I am making myself prepared or at least aware, getting a foot in the door, do you think there's certain trainings or, or things that people should be doing as part of the development plans to get them ready for for all this. There's some really great trainings. There's certifications that you can obtain that give you that high level privacy overview. I do think any industry, medical publication included, that's going to be dealing with data, whether it's anonymized or not anonymized, whether you're actually accessing it or you're just getting sort of output from it, you need to understand that data has a ton of benefits, but also has some corresponding risk. And so there are things like the International Association of Privacy Professionals does trainings. There's a ton of opportunities at colleges and universities where you can sort of take some one-off classes. But it's just, again, it's really making you an informed user of data. I'm not advocating everyone go out there and become a privacy expert. I think that would be a bit much in, in addition to your other things that you're doing in your life. But it's more recognition that we're all using data, we're all using technology, and we need to become informed users of that data and technology. Yeah, yeah. It certainly makes me go back to thinking about where we started the conversation and use the word partners. You know, I think probably some of the best advice for folks listening to this is to make sure that if you don't have the in-house knowledge, that you're at least partnering with people who can advise you appropriately um, and, and taking you through the right steps. It's so important. And I think the earliest and the easiest time to address this is before something happens, right? It's before you've collected the data. It's before you have published the article that might then have ramifications, et cetera. And a lot of it is just building into your vetting process, your due diligence process. Have we thought about privacy? Have we thought about security and technology? And if we have, did we make sure, do, are we comfortable with where we came out on that approach? So let me ask you one last question to kind of round things out. You've certainly raised an eyebrow here and, and raised our awareness. Is this a doom and gloom story or, you know, how do we, how do we end this? <laughs> it's not doom and gloom. And I always want to do a disclaimer, like it's going to be scary, but hopefully we come out in a positive way at the end. I actually think we're all prepped and ready for this conversation. I think us as individuals, you know, recognizing the last two and a half years, we've increasingly relied on technology and data just to run our personal lives in addition to our business lives. I think we're well prepped to have this conversation to start talking about privacy and security and technology within our infrastructures. And really it is starting slow, starting small, and just starting to build that up. So asking your team before you publish an article, do we have privacy considerations? Just starting the conversation can be incredibly valuable. I find that so many companies, it feels like Pandora's box when they go to dive into this. It's very complex, as we've noted. It can be confusing, it can be scary. Doom and gloom is definitely a common phrase used in this space, but it doesn't have to be. 
a lot of these regulations are about using data in a compliant way. They're not about not using data. A lot of these regulations are about requiring you to think about your infrastructure from a slightly different perspective, but again, not wholesale changing your operations, your processes, et cetera. So I always like to say the first thing you can do is take out a piece of paper, start writing down, you know, what would you do if data was impacted? What's a question you would ask before you publish an article to determine whether or not privacy is impacted? And then just start using them, right? It doesn't have to be incredibly complex, sophisticated. We don't need an entire tool or program or software to do this. We just need to start having the conversations and then that will kind of snowball into larger conversations where you'll start to be able to make some critical business decisions. Do we need to build in a compliance program? Do we feel comfortable that the team is informed enough to be asking the right questions, et cetera? So do not feel like you have to run out after this podcast and you know go hire all these experts and buy all the tools, et cetera. Literally just take out a piece of paper and say, where would we be concerned about privacy? Where do we have data? And start there and then slowly build from that. I really appreciate that practical advice because I think a lot of listeners probably just don't know exactly where to start. And I'm also grateful for the message of hope that you provide because in a scary place, it's nice to know that there's a potential light at the end of the tunnel. Jordan, thank you so much. We're very fortunate to have had you on the podcast today. I think you've given us a very good overview of of this area and some tips and tricks and areas that we can kind of get started. So I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for listening to Informed for Medical Communication Professionals. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, inform your colleagues, and rate our show highly if you liked what you heard today. We hope that you'll also join us at an upcoming ISMAP University webinar or even consider becoming a member of our association. Just go to ismap.org, that's I-S-M-P-P.org, to learn more. I'm Rob Mathias. <laughs>